You're listening to the Comic Book Informer Podcast with Vince and Raj, a podcast for everyone from comic nerds to comic noobs. You know who you are. Now here's your host, Vince. Hello, Hello and welcome everybody. to the comic book. <laughs> you jackass. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> I'm not starting back again. Roll with it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Comic Book Informer podcast. We are coming to you on Wednesday, October 26th, for our very special 50th issue. We've been going for 50 or so weeks. <laughs> and as anybody who listens to our game podcast knows, we like to celebrate our milestone episodes with a drink or six. So... Roger and I are going to be a little more happy. fun than usual, let's just say. Isn't that right, Roger? <laughs> just a little happier, yes. And so for a special episode, we'd like to bring on some special guests. Unfortunately, our number one fangirl, Joe, wasn't available today. So <laughs> we brought in our number two fangirl, the wonderful Tart Darling. Hello. Hello. Now, while this is your second appearance on the show, it's actually the first one the listeners are going to hear. Uh, unfortunately, you are slightly less awesome than Jonathan Mayberry, so we had to punch, <laughs> bump your interview from last week. I am not offended in the slightest. Them some big shoes to fill. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, uh, make sure to check out our episode next week for uh, a nice little interview with Tart about uh, women in comics. Focusing on DC, but uh, had some other stuff to talk about. But anyway, for a 50th episode... We really had to come up with something special. And by we, I mean you. me. <laughs> and there's a certain comic that, well, I'm quite frankly just in love with. If anybody who's read my personal stuff on my website knows, I have a fond. Yes. <laughs> fondle? You have a fondle? Yes. Okay. Well, remember what we said earlier. <laughs> It's a family-friendly show, dude. What the yeah, hell? Sorry. I, I have a nice place in my heart for the comic Watchmen. And not just Watchmen, because what makes this episode so perfect is that just within the last few weeks, actually, Watchmen is celebrating its 25th anniversary of its first publication. 1986 is quite possibly one of the most momentous years Four comic books. We had The Dark Knight Returns comes out. That's when Walt Simonson started writing Thor. All kinds of great stuff going on back then, 25 years ago, culminating with what many consider one of the best comics ever written, and that is Watchmen. Now, I've read Watchmen a couple dozen times. I go through it every once in a while just because I enjoy reading it. Uh, Tart, ha you have read Watchmen before, correct? Yes, it's been quite a while, but I have read it. Okay. And Roger, you actually just read it for the first time for this episode. I literally just read it. So I, I'm trying to remember if it had come out while I was still reading comic books way, way back. You said 86, right? Yes. So no, I wouldn't have been. Well, I might have been. I might have been because I stopped when I was 15. So it would have been right around that age. And I, But I don't recall reading it back then. That's the thing. And so for this, I, it's one of those series that I've, I've always wanted to read. But as with many others, there's always something else to read. And especially there's something, you know, newer, shinier. And especially because right now, as I've been getting caught up on the decades that I've missed, I've been following the, the huge, huge story arcs kind of things. And 
now that I've gotten through some of those, I'm, I'm working my way through a lot of the miniseries as well that were quite good and important for their time. And this was something that I did in plan, plan on, sorry, I did plan on reading soon. So it kind of worked out pretty well. So I literally only just read this over past week because I figured that I could pound through these suckers in a couple of nights kind of thing like I normally do with comics but oh no 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 these suckers take a while to read so no it, it took me all week to to get through all of them so but that means they're fresh in my mind right now yeah, obviously, I didn't read them when they first came out uh, at the age of five. I was a little more interested in Shut Transformers up. and G.I. Joes than I was in uh, dystopian reimaginings of the comic book genre. <laughs> and see, here is where I make you both feel old and say that I wasn't even able to read when these came out. Oh, neither was Vince at five. Come on. <laughs> he ain't that smart. <laughs> uh, he, yeah. he didn't even have his body training down bad by then. <laughs> hey, I figured that out by second grade. So we're going to take this in and take a couple different approaches to this comic. And first and foremost, we're just going to talk about the story itself. And Watchmen has, at the time, what was a very interesting setup. It took place in a very real world, although with a altered timeline because of the heroes in it, where the Superman comics and all the stuff from the 30s and 40s inspired a generation of people to actually, well, dress up in their underwear and go fight crime. And it became uh, not... I don't want to say like a huge thing like we see in comics these days with teams of superheroes and so that, but it became kind of a fad with a lot of people following through with it until in the 70s, they decided to just outlaw superheroes. If you've heard this story before, it's because the Pixar movie, The Incredibles, borrows heavily from the entire concept of Watchmen, as well as many, many other comics since then, uh, most notably, let's say the Civil War even. And the story for the comic, the story itself is good where we have a one of the former heroes who has been murdered and his colleagues start to investigate his murder and it turns into this big conspiracy theory uh we get crazy sci-fi elements coming in with the one person in the world who actually is a superhero and not just some knucklehead in spandex and it i just like the way this like we're just focusing on the story itself here it's it it has a very solid story that it then builds upon through all the more abstract elements that it adds in. What's funny is that I think that I have a little bit more insight in a large portion of the story than either of you two, two do because I am of that generation as well. When I was reading it, it was it was interesting for me and I, and I already knew a lot about it not obviously not just because of the movie, though I'd seen the movie, but also because I remember hearing about the story way back when and then over the years kind of thing. So I, I went in knowing a lot of it already. And I think that's partially also why I would put it off for so long, because if you were uh, a teenager or older during the 80s, then you kind of got bombarded with that whole U.S. versus Russia thing. And it was everywhere. It was on TV, it was in the movies, it was in the music, Sting sang about it. It was just everywhere. And it was very real for a time as well. And so when I finally read this, then it was it was very much that that concept. And it that that theme is very, very prevalent in the series. Like very prevalent. And so I think that as much as you two appreciated the story and were able to take from it a, a lot, obviously. 
I think that anyone from my generation and older can really get a lot more out of it than you can because we can remember what it was at that time and that fear that was very, very real. So as much as they over exemplify it, or in some cases it may seem as such, it's the truth is that at times it was freaking scary how close it came. Yeah, it's like, like when they're talking about the fallout shelters and all kinds of stuff like that. I can only imagine what it was like. You, know, I lived through a time, but I don't remember anything other than transforming robots. Sorry. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, it, I, I have seen Red Dawn, though. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we went through, you know, the Great War and things like that it, for that, that time period. But there were a lot of things that were very real. And that fear that it was there, it was, it was so very close so very often is was frightening at the time and that's why it was everywhere and that's also why i mean when it was done properly in various media was when the artist in question really wasn't afraid to take a chance to show just how close it was kind of thing and to to remark on the fear that was there that people had of of this this potential nuclear war and so that's something that they did here what's funny is that again you don't have to look very far than than reports that have come out since then now where we've heard about literally Damn, I wish I could remember his name. There was a Russian soldier that literally, it was his responsibility. His finger was on the button and that would have been it. But he decided that it was a malfunction that was causing uh, blips on the radar that otherwise were mistaken for U.S. nuclear warheads. And he decided that it must be a, a mistake. And so he actually didn't fire. But it was literally one man's choice at one point that he could have chosen to annihilate, you know, both countries and and then some so i think again that that's something that i re i remember and i was part of so when i'm looking at this having just read it i am reliving those moments and remembering it I, and again i, I don't want to make it much more than what it is of course we all survived it's not a big deal but it was there and i like how that was represented in this uh, that's good to hear that point of view so again the overall story we get uh, this hero, the comedian, and I use that term very loosely, especially in this story, <laughs> who has just turned up dead, fell out of his apartment window. And some of his compatriots then step up to start investigating it. And they find out that the comedian kind of caught on to something was amiss. And again, it's, it starts off as this detective story. And that's one of the cool things about Watchmen, how it evolves not just its story, but also like the genres of the story as it goes along. It starts off with the detective tale. It moves over into this crazy sci-fi stuff going on. And then it comes up with like your, you know, your James Bond moment, even <laughs> like the, the, the big spy thriller with, the, you know, the megalomaniacal villain, etc. And then it comes back to that very small focused storyline, which I, I, I really enjoyed it about the, the structure of the story in this one. Tart, I'll let you talk because I have something to say about that. Well, y you can go ahead. I'm trying to um, kind of give myself the refresher by listening to Vince. It's been, <laughs> it's been many a year since I've Why read did we Washington. bring her on the show? I actually, see, I actually disagree with you, Vince. And this is going to be a, obviously a bone of contention throughout the whole episode. There, there were certainly things that I, I liked about this. However, 
there were actually quite a number of things that I was not as crazy about with this series. I don't want to say, as I joked before the show, that it's been blown out of proportion. However, there's still, in my opinion, a fragment of truth to that, in that I think that it has become more than what maybe what it should have been or you know it, it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to word it properly i certainly don't want to insult the work i don't want to insult I, I, people I can, who, I can see your point of view but that, i think that i think that if the series had come out now that it would not have had nearly the impact mm-hmm. so it's the equivalent of somebody who experienced gone with the wind Back in the day. Now, that's before my time, okay? But the experience gone with the day. It was. Okay, listen. So the people who experienced it then have a very, very fond memory of it because what it meant in that time. Now, I've seen Gone with the Wind, and I didn't even like it. Okay, now I've seen the movie and read the book. Because you're a guy. I didn't like it. No, that has nothing to do with it. It's because (laughs) the story didn't speak to me because I wasn't there. It was one of those very much, you needed to experience it in the time for it to have the biggest impact on you. There's a reason why some of the most diehard Star Wars nerds, and I use the word nerd as a compliment, are the ones that experienced it as a kid when it first, first came out. And I was there as well. But I don't fall in that category. I, I, there were other movies I, I preferred at the time even. But it's it's very much a, if you experience it in that time, it's going to mean that much more to you. It's, it's very much rooted in when it was released. That's what this is. Very, very much rooted in when it was released. Very much because of the entire conflict between the, uh, the, 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 the superpowers. And so reading it now is different even though i can appreciate it based on the knowledge of you know who i was what was going on at that time i'm still reading it and thinking you know what it's good but i can look at it much more critically now as opposed to just having been blown away by it in the time i don't like the fact that it bounces around so much i i don't like that at all i think that had they followed a concise uh, theme throughout, whether it be the detective work of, of Rorschach or, you know, other things, then it would have been far better. I think that it was trying to do too much at the same time, especially when you start putting in the other comic series that's being read at the same time to, you know, oh, give a whole a, other meaning to, to say about that. So <laughs> it's just that I think he was trying too hard to try to prove that he's smarter than all the other combo grinders at times and i don't think it worked all the time a lot of the time it did but in some cases no it it, for me no and see i i can kind of agree with you on that one i know when i read it for the first time i think i was only maybe 12 or 13 and i hated it it wasn't until my probably second or third read through that I finally was like, okay, you know, this isn't as awful as I thought it was the first time. And I, I can definitely uh, feel that because it's the same thing. And I, now looking back at it, as I do now, really have to kind of get into the mindset of what comics themselves were like back in 1986. Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, etc. Those were the standouts. And at the time, that's when uh, Uncanny X-Men was just starting to come into its own. Uh, same thing with New Teen Titans. And they were the ones that were really changing how comics worked. Because back then, a lot of comics in the early 80s, you know Roger, they weren't very 
deep. <laughs> you know, they told some fun stories and yeah, there were some cool characters, there was some good writing, but overall there wasn't much substance to them. And that's one of the things that not just Watchmen, but a lot of the other comics that came out in that year and around that same time really changed in the industry. And I'll agree that the actual story of Watchmen itself isn't fantastic, but as we're going to show later on throughout the episode, it's a lot of the things that Watchmen did as a comic itself, larger than just the story, that kind of set it apart. Oh, I agree with that. I do. And I did this come out before or after uh, Dark Knight? Dark Knight came out in February. Watchmen came out in September. Okay, because I had Dark Knight, so I I obviously I obviously was still collecting right up until close to that point. So, and we're talking like many many years ago now. So yeah. I honestly I just you have don't trouble remembering remember. yesterday. Let alone <laughs> yesterday, I've got last week is what's a little blurry. But uh, but no, I had Dark Knight, and so no, I do remember a lot of the comics still that were of that time frame and the problems that were plaguing them and. Partially, that's also why I had stopped reading comics at the time. It wasn't that I had a, a problem with uh, a medium that was, you know, that other people tended to look down upon because it wasn't as hip as comics are now, thanks to like Big Bang Theory and things like that, uh, which the ads in the Big Bang Theory or in the comics <laughs> for Big Bang kill me. I think that's hilarious. But, um, but it wasn't, and it wasn't that that bothered me so much as it just, there were so many stories that were lacking so much substance that it just wasn't reading it, worth reading anymore. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And I've read a lot of those other comics that came out at the time, and, and just as kind of like that retro adventure, I, it gave me a little more appreciation for the really good comics that were coming out during that time frame. So we're going to slide away from the story, and now we're going to focus on the characters themselves. Now, one of the things that's very interesting about these characters is originally Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons were going to create the story around some characters that DC had just acquired from Charlton Comics. They just went out of business. DC bought their backlog where the uh, Night Owl was originally supposed to be the Blue Beetle, the Ted Kord version, not the more recent one. Uh, Dr. Manhattan was originally supposed to be Captain Adam. And Rorschach was originally supposed to be the question, as well as some other heroes that never had even remote popularity. But then DC decided to they, – they didn't want to invest in those characters and then only use them for this one story. So they let Moore and Gibbons come up with their own characters. And what we get here is just a lot of archetypes. And, and you know, you have the – smart gadget, you know, Batman type character in Night Owl. You have the gritty street level detective in Rorschach. You have the the superhuman man in Dr. Manhattan. And then you have, you know, the, the, the token female character, which again, in the 80s, there wasn't that many female characters really taking leading roles in comics. Uh, you had the, the, the guy that was just smarter than everybody else, Ozymandias. And then your Wolverine type character in the comedian, you know, the anti-hero, the one that nobody likes, but everybody loves, that sort of thing. And he took these archetypes and just really bored in into what made each type of character unique and then kind of twisted that as to really what were these characters' actual motivations for doing what they do? Was it a sense of duty? Was it, you know, for the money? Was it just because they liked hurting people or even stranger reasons why they dressed up in these outfits? That's one of the things that he did do a very good job on because it, it's like we've discussed before too on, on a variety of, of episodes where in 
you can take stereotypes and still use them. Just the writing better be really good so that you can make those characters stand out. And that's what he did. Because, I mean, a night owl is obviously Batman. That's who it is. (laughs) But he twists it enough. It's one of those where he took a concept, which is something that I do a lot when I write too. So I'll take a concept and... It may very well be a concept that's used in literature elsewhere or in movie or story or whatever, but you start with that. And then you start with the what if. Okay, well, what if this happened instead? What if this happened instead? And before you know it, you have a different character. So the base, what you started with, that foundation is something that is known, but you you did enough work on it from there on that it is your character. And that's what he did with that. I love the character of, uh, of Night Owl. What's his name again? I can't Dan. remember it. Yeah, Dan, Dan Dreberg. So I love what he did with him because it's not Bruce Wayne. It's not the cocky playboy. It's the the it's guy the with the opposite. gut that just lives in <laughs> yeah. quiet and feels longing when he goes down in this basement. So I like what he did with all of the characters. And really, Rorschach, you cannot get a more gripping character for a miniseries than Rorschach. I... I would have loved to have seen more done with that character in in a variety of other series. Hell, his own series, because it was so well written and so dark and so gritty and so good. And that's how it was with most of the characters, not all. And then, of course, with the comedian, you have a case where he's not afraid to really push that limit. Mm-hmm. Of here's supposed here's someone that's supposed to be a hero, but look at what it is that he's doing. Is he really a hero? Now, granted, some of that is the slap in the face of do I really have to knock you over the head with this lesson so that you can learn it? Come on, uh, but he does a very good job with it nonetheless. And I mean, he tackled a very sensitive subject, a very tough subject, and we've made it clear what at least my opinions are on that and how you can skirt around it and still instill fear and instill, you know, this sense of hatred for whoever's uh, at the root of it. But you don't have to be kick-ass too graphic about it kind of thing. And Moore did a good job at it. It was frightening, it was disturbing, but it was never at the point where it was used as a means of just sensationalism. No, it wasn't. It was used very well as a means of portraying just how terrible this character is, but never at, at the expense of, of uh, what's her name? The Spectre, the Silk Spectre. Yeah, Sally at the time. Sally, yeah. So, again, there's there's a lot that he did with the characters that is very, very commendable. Anything yeah, that stuck I, to you? Yeah. I completely adore Rorschach. He he is definitely one of those characters you can't help but like because he's written so well. And I completely agree with you on that one, Roger. I would have loved to have seen another miniseries, another spinoff something with more of him. And this is one of those things where the movie really enhanced a lot of this for me. Because the movie gave a certain voice to the characters that was kind of different from my perceptions and allowed me to look at them kind of differently. Like reading the comic as many times as I have, I never liked the comedian as a character. And that's not just because of, you know, the bad things he does. He just never really gripped me as an actual character. But then Jeffrey Dean Morgan's portrayal of him in the movie made it, he was so freaking awesome. Like he was this terrible, terrible human being, 
but you couldn't help but like him. Like he had that sarcastic, you know, that little grin and stuff. And then going back and reading it afterwards, kind of with that voice in my head, it really made me like the character that much more. Rorschach's, whoever did the oh. casting for Rorschach was so bang on, it was frightening. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, again, just how real they all seemed. Uh, I, it all comes down to Night Owl. Night Owl is the the heart of the story, you know, the central character for a lot of it. And this is a guy who he goes in his basement and he's got a freaking hovercraft just sitting there. I mean, he's got all these fantastic inventions. And yet he is such a poor, poor person, like not in money, but just you know, he has no soul left in him. He's broken down. He's beaten. He and when he sees Lori, he's just he has that defeated look on his face throughout the entire first half of the comic series until he, you know, he becomes Night Owl again. And it really establishes his character of it wasn't, you know, necessarily about, you know, fighting crime or this and that. Yeah, that was part of it. But he got I don't think it's defeat. I think you've got the wrong terminology there. It's not that he was defeated so mm -hmm. much as the life was out of him when he was not being Night Owl, when he was just trying to live. He, there was no reason to be excited for life. There was no reason to, you know, enjoy yeah. life. He was he was just this very mundane person who had no real significance. And he was going through a depression and, and all of those things. I don't see it myself as defeat so much as just lost the will to live. But I, without I, 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 going yeah. through with an actual, you know, suicide kind of thing. Um, and that's, that's way different. So then when the option comes along the possibility of once again donning the costume it it doesn't take a lot to convince him and once he does he's immediately brought back to life quite obviously with with the scene with him and her and uh most awkward sex scene ever, ever yeah yes but uh, but God. but that's what it's 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 different again it's not a defeatist attitude so much as just mm -hmm. a huge huge depression yeah, Dan boils down to one scene for me when uh, Rorschach shows up at his place and tells him that the comedian was killed. And Dan starts, you know, they, they start reliving some of their old adventures. And you see a little of that life come back into him. Exactly. And he goes, "What? whatever happened to those times? And as Rorschach walks away, he goes, it's simple. You quit. And then the next panel is just him all fat and slob like they're slouched down in his, you know, bat cave, if you will. That one panel, that one scene really is Dan's character for me. And that's why I love him so much. Just the way he's portrayed and how realistic he is, because we've all been there at some point in our lives, just not in such a sensational manner, at least. Well, what I liked as well was that it, again, it covered depression. I mean, it covered depression in a variety of ways, whether it be because of like that or because of the, the attempted rape and things like that. It covered depression for several of the characters and not just you know, that sad depression of, oh, I'm no longer in tights kind of thing, but quite seriously took it to another level. And I like that. That's not something that you got from other comic books. I mean, there, with the exception of some of the things that you read, like The Dark Knight, where, again, it's a whole different character for a bunch of different reasons. But for the most part, you didn't get that because... Most people still weren't talking about depression. Most people weren't accepting it as something that was an actual illness and not just something that you could snap your fingers and get out of kind of thing. I mean, we've come a long way now where you can see the commercials on TV of, you know, depression's a very real thing for real people and blah, blah, blah. And I don't say blah, blah, blah is a demeaning thing. So to do that in the 80s, though, 
was huge, 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 huge. And he didn't come right out and say it, but that's what it was. And I have to commend him for taking those chances and for writing it so well that it it was something that was real that you can relate to. Whenever you can make someone relate to a mental disorder of whatever sort, then it becomes something that's real and not just something that you can point at and laugh at. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of missing the 800-pound giant blue naked gorilla that's in the room uh, in Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> and <laughs> I would have expected him to be hung a little bit better. This is all I'm saying. If you're going to come back as an omnipotent blue dude, you know, give yourself a couple of extra inches is all I'm saying. Well, who needs a couple of extra inches when you can just have a couple of extra parts? <laughs> but Oh, God. My- <laughs> <laughs> clean Joe, clean Joe. <laughs> and one of the things that fascinates me about Dr. Manhattan, and again, it's one of those things I didn't really catch on to at first, but it, upon repeat, is how much of a character he is just due simply to his absolute lack of character. And you, especially like some of the scenes where he's so detached from what's going on around him, you can kind of feel the dis- the disturbing like unease that a lot of the characters around him are feeling and, and how he just how different he is how alien how how much the world changed when he was created and i i, I can't believe that an emotionless soulless character like dr Manhattan could again have so much depth to his non-character would have had a lot more of an impact then than it does now simply because we've seen it so much since then which isn't taken away from the credit that is that Moore did a lot more work on that and that other people are paying homage or copying, whatever you want to say. But the fact remains that if you're reading the series now, you're going to look at this as I did and say, man, you know what? I've seen this so much. I, I can appreciate how it's written. I can appreciate that the, the turmoil of the character as well, even though he should not, he still does have some inner turmoil. I can appreciate all those things, but it's been done too much. I, it's, it's, at this point, it's oversaturated. I wasn't able to enjoy that character. He's he's probably my least favorite character. Mm-hmm. And I I kind of liked Doctor Manhattan just because he, was he naked. always re- well, <laughs> no, that wasn't the reason why. Because he has a hairless yeah. ass, and you're stuck After with Joe. We've talked about how about how how they. <laughs> Joe is remarkably unhairy for being Italian. Okay, I'm just saying. After all we've talked about, uh, about framing female characters in comics to have certain poses that accentuate certain parts of their anatomy, and yet how many shots here in Watchmen do we have of that low angle from behind Dr. Manhattan just so he can get his ass in the center of the panel? Yep. <laughs> well, but I it's remember. blue. That's what they're doing with X-Men. It's like, well, if they could do it with Watchmen, we could do it with, with freaking the chick. <laughs> well, I remember them saying that I think it was Gibbons, who said that he wasn't sure that they would even allow Manhattan to be naked. So they had to try to be careful of how to frame any of the full frontal shots because they didn't think they could get away with it. Well, that's why they're quite he he tends to be further away from the shot. So Mm -hmm. he's not in the, the foreground. He's like way back kind of thing. And they said that that was one of the reasons why he's not as um 
and voluptuous, out. maybe. Yeah. Voluptuous. <laughs> voluptuous. I don't think that's the right word. I know it's not, but I like it. <laughs> that's how I'm going to describe it from now on. I'm going to try that one this weekend. I'm see how that works that out all the time. <laughs> I need a tattoo but... of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I need another drink. <laughs> best part of this is i haven't even had any drinks yep. i'm just in the middle just of naturally blend. disturbing okay vince are we taking a break go ahead yeah. okay take a break you sound like you need it oh. <laughs> yes refill your glasses we'll start back in a few minutes all right but, shh, roger's back stop talking about variant covers variant covers i heard that all i heard was variant covers <laughs> I you for that. That's all I heard. <laughs> Varian covers what? What? <laughs> it's like a little alarm for Roger. Variant? What? Variant? What are we talking about? <laughs> no, Roger. No. Hey, I've been making sure that I don't. I'm not going in on Wednesdays. I go in on my freaking Saturday regular time so that they're all sold out. So, because I know, I know, I'll pick it up. <laughs> yeah, my my guy handed me a huge stack of variants today. Ah, oh, man, I, you know what? I, uh, I wish my guy was as good as yours. Like I like mine. He's good and all, but he's nowhere near as good as yours. Yeah, he that pisses he, me off. Well, for some weird reason at my shop, he doesn't do a lot of business in variants. You know like, what? I've heard that from a variety of places, though. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, but he likes to collect them himself, right. so he always just tries to get them if he can, and he knows that I'll buy them, so he'll set them aside for me and just go, oh, okay, here, you get to pick now. See, I'm pretty sure my guy just keeps all the variants and sells them online. Jackass. <laughs> That's why well, I said, and- if you're if your dude put them aside and then showed them to me kind of thing, he could box them up and ship them to me, I'd pay him. <laughs> He would probably do it. I've said it. I know he. I know he does some mail orders. It'd be business. I'd. I'd do it. I wouldn't have a problem with it. And it just see, take eighteen the, weeks to get there. The oh, the benefit for me is that's just that when he Joe gives ships to, stuff. He gives them to me for half off. Yeah. See, that's not right. <laughs> that's just not right. All right, so after that quick little refill break, we've discussed the story, we discussed the characters, and how, in a lot of ways, especially looking back at it now. They become, I don't want to say cliche, but they've kind of become standard. And while they might have been groundbreaking at the time, it's really hard to read the comic now and see it how it was, see it as groundbreaking as it was then. But there are a few things that Watchmen does that still to this day haven't been equaled in comics, at least in my eyes. And a lot of that comes, sorry, did you got? I was going to wait until you pause there, but I was going to say, before we go into, you know, the, the specifics that you were going to talk about, I think that it's it's important to note that when you're talking about it's easier to appreciate then than now kind of thing, the thing about that is that the main reason for that is only because it is so rooted in time. Mm-hmm. It's so rooted in that very specific time. Were it not for that, it'd be a lot easier for everyone to relate to it. And the, the example that I wanted to use was I finally read Kingdom Come as well. I had not read that yet. And you praised it as one of the best miniseries you'd ever read. And so I thought, well, obviously it's worth reading. Now, that one is not rooted in any time. And I was able to read it as if it was just written last week kind of thing. And 
I adored it. I mean, dude, oh my God, it was amazing. <laughs> it was even more amazing because I was reading it around the same time as I'd been reading the new DC-52. <laughs> so in comparison, <laughs> it was like the freaking holy grail of comic books. <laughs> so I absolutely adored it. And again, part of that though was that I could look at it as if it had just recently been written. But mm-hmm. The Watchmen being so very rooted in the other time, in, in the 80s, is something that is harder to take out of that time and appreciate. All right. Well, that's you. <laughs> I, but anyway. I actually kind of agree with Roger on that one. That I, I didn't see... bring you here so you could agree with Roger. Everybody. I'm sorry. <laughs> Again, it's the same thing as if you read um, The Grapes of Wrath right now. Uh, I've read it. It's a phenomenal novel. However, I'm quite certain neither of you have lived through the Depression, and neither did I. So I didn't appreciate it as much as others did. I've talked to people who read it, who lived through those times, that it moved them to tears at that point. It was so such a gripping story. That's what happens when you're writing that something that's so very much for a specific time. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you can agree with me all you want. The fact is, is that you cannot read this without n- uh, n- understanding that it it's all about that time frame. I mean, the characters are just uh, uh, basically a a way of illustrating what's going on in that time frame, what people were feeling, the fears and the, the anxiety and everything. The whole story is based on that time. So again, you can argue with me all you want. I'm right this time. <laughs> well, and I've actually had a couple of friends where after I'd mentioned how much I liked it, they went back and read it, but had no idea of what was going on at the time when it was written, anything like that, and just didn't like it because it it just didn't click with them because they had no reference for it at all. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, back to what I was originally saying. <laughs> that there's a lot of things that Watchmen does the out- show. outside of its actual story that does make it so unique at the time. And, of course, Alan Moore is, well, was, let's say, a legend in the industry. A lot of his uh, more recent work is... Very questionable, as we've discussed way back when. But Dave Gibbons, the artist on this, they worked together creating this world. And for me personally, I'd say Gibbons' contributions to the comic go a lot more into making Watchmen the timeless thing it was than Moore's writing did, just because of the structure of the comic itself. If you look at the comic, every page is broken down into the old school, traditional nine panel format which sets a certain pace for the story. You, you, you flip the page and you just your eyes know where to look and it has a pace as you're reading it. And then at times he chooses to break out of that format, which when you're just flipping through it, it really catches your eye. And again, in 1986... Yes. Yeah. Okay. In 1986. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm actually looking at the first issue as you're talking mm-hmm. and I'm looking through it, and that's exactly what I'd been thinking as well when I was mm-hmm. reading it. And I'm flipping through and there's, oh, it's not there's... nine panels. Instead, it's one huge panel of a blue oh, ass. Dr. Manhattan. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly where you were going when you laughed. <laughs> and, and just... It lets you know as a reader, hey, this is something important. Maybe if it's just <laughs> maybe if it's just a character like that showing up for the first time in an impressive way. Oh God. Oh, it is impressive. 
I mean, come on, look at it. Or a lot of times it's when not it breaks flat. That- there's there's a certain you know, couple of handfuls there. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> Go on. Oh, Vince hates us now. <laughs> I don't hate you. I'm just <laughs> laughing quietly to myself. <laughs> but it's true. You know, it's funny because we talked about this before. Um, I think was it yesterday we were talking. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember yesterday? Not always. Because um, <laughs> we were talking about just this. Because we'd be talking about the Watchmen and whatnot, and talking about the blue asses. And it's funny because in the same way that I look at what he did, more did with. Um, the rape and and other things in the story. He used this not as a sensationalist way of getting people's attention or or of getting readers or eliciting eliciting hatred from people who thought it was immoral and wrong and whatnot, but rather as a means of imparting something important about the character that mm-hmm. he cares that he's so disassociated with moral conventions and everything else that this is all right to him. And by illustrating it, that it's something that it's, it's that visual slap in the forehead kind of schmuck that wakes you up and say, yeah, this is, this is how disassociated this character is from everyone else that he's supposed to be, to have been, you know, a quote unquote partner in this supergroup with. So it's it's a very visual cue that is not just sensationalism, but rather moves the story along. Mm-hmm. Anything jump out at you aside from the giant blue man tart? Um, no, but I thinking back on it now, yeah, I definitely I've got a copy that I'm flipping through. And yeah, I kind of didn't pick up on that so much. But I can see how, yeah, just using that one panel to kind of illustrate mm-hmm. things instead of the standard setup, it does kind of make them pop out for you. Well, that's like, the thing, too. In one panel, you can say more with just the art. And this is something that Jonathan Mayberry was talking about with us as well the other night, where you can say so much more with just one panel of just plain art. I mean, completely disregard what Rorschach is saying there. Because it's just good evening, Dr. Manhattan. But so much is said just from the art and from the composition of what is going on there. And so that's when you can appreciate again that this isn't just meant to shock the audience, but to really convey something important in the span of one friggin' frame. Mm-hmm. That's kudos to that team for that. And like just just flipping through the pages, not even reading, not even you know paying that much attention to what's going on. Those pages that jump out at you, you get the story just from that quick little perusal, which is so important. And like I'm looking through issue three right now, which is the one where um, Dan and Lori get into that street fight. And it's all nine pages, nine pages. And then as we get or nine panels, I'm sorry, as we get closer to that scene, it suddenly becomes six panels per page. And just that pacing of the comic itself coincides with the pacing of that scene because at the same time you have them in the street fight you have dr manhattan getting blindsided in his interview the comic itself the story moves at a quick pace in that scene and then just the actual physical comic itself continues that pace visually 
Yeah. The, the thing is, too, is that at the time, too, though, you still weren't getting the insane um, setups on the page as mm-hmm. we do now. So this was different, but not that different from what was the norm at the time. But it was just enough that the pacing was correct. He kept your eyes moving where he wanted you, kept you flipping the pages as fast as you needed to for the um, to keep the story, the momentum going of the story. There are a few points where I thought that it lagged far too much, but overall, especially when it came to scenes where there is action and whatnot, yeah, no, the pacing is quite good. Mm-hmm. So... There's a lot of other things here, and Moore and Gibbons have gone on record saying that one of their goals with Watchmen was to create something in the comic medium that could not be equaled anywhere else. They wanted to do their best to make a comic that could never be made into a movie, (laughs) even though it was, Mm -hmm. and the movie was a very faithful reproduction. There's a lot of things that the movie just could not do. And get your comics because we're going on a field trip, and we're going to go to – We're going to go to issue five. Issue five was the one titled Fearful Symmetry. And the title is exactly what the issue is. We're going to go to the exact middle of the issue, the scene where uh, Ozymandias, Adrian, beats the assassin over the head with the freaking ashtray. Yes, I'm there. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and Uh, I remember that in the movie as well, too. Mm -hmm. But what you see when you look at this page is the symmetry. You see the big V in the background in the center. You see how Adrian's leg and the the assailant's arm make that. And also it has that right there. We're in chapter five. And hey, X marks the spot for the big plot twist at the end. And then if you just go from there and work your way outwards to the first panels of of the comic, the comic is symmetrical. If you flip panel for panel, page for page... If not a, completely artistically, the panel layout is the same on opposite pages. There's the scenes where it's flashing back and forth between the real world and the pirate comic, and those are symmetrical. You go all the way back to the beginning, and at the beginning when Rorschach is in the apartment and the light outside is flashing between red being on and then black being off, that's symmetrical with the pages from there. And that's a great visual cue, but not only that, the story in the comic is symmetrical. At the beginning of the comic, Rorschach is the biggest badass on the streets. He is the most feared man in the city. But then by the end of the comic, he's been defeated. He's been brought down by the police. There's no longer anything to fear from Rorschach. That kind of structure in a comic book just blows me away. That Basically, what that is is very, very careful planning on both yes. of their parts. Yeah. Definite careful planning. And it's one of those things where nobody, and I mean nobody, picked up on it the first time through. It wasn't until I was told to specifically look for that pattern that I discovered it. And not just that, the the, the little cues he throws in there, the uh, – I forget what the name is if it's called. It's like the Red Rider or the Red Rum uh, logo, logo with the skull and crossbones and the R's being reversed and how Rorschach is the central figure in this comic and Rorschach – the definition of a Rorschach test is a symmetrical ink blot, things like that, where there's even a scene where they're in an apartment and there's an album cover, like a poster on the wall. And Dave Gibbons said, uh, this is what he claims. I think this might be more popular legend than anything else. He was just flipping through a book of album covers, saw that one, saw the cover was symmetrical and used it. Well, it turns out that's a Grateful Dead album. And I couldn't even begin to pronounce it right now. The 
title to that album is actually a palindrome. <laughs> it's the completely insane things like that, that the little details all throughout Watchmen that are staggering when you think that they planned a lot of this stuff out so far in advance to make it work on the level that it does. Yeah, but that, I mean, okay, I, I, I certainly don't want to discredit that, but all that is is careful planning. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we're in a time, will you get rid of that cat? Unfortunately, <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a time where there's not enough planning in, in comic no, books and no, a lot of things. Lot of oh, yeah. And so and we see that and you can appreciate that. But what this is, is just basically they planned it out. They didn't write the first issue with an overall story arc that they then pre- presented to DC and said, this is where we want to take it. And then wrote it issue by issue. They planned the entire thing out. And now... As an example of that, and I'm, I'm not to talk too much about myself or, or, or whatnot, but I'm working right now on a, I'm actually, jeez, it's a freaking podcast. People can't see me, and yet I'm pointing at my storyboard, okay? <laughs> Good God. But anyways, I'm working on a miniseries right now for, not for comic books, for novels. So a young adult miniseries that I'm working on, that's going to be six books, and they're all very much intertwined. I have been working on, and this is no word of a lie. Now, granted, I, I don't do this full-time. I, obviously, I've got the podcast. I work full-time, so I do it when I can and whatnot. I've been working on this for over a year to make sure that the planning is going to be spot on for all of them. And that's what this is. That's what this reminds me of. This is, they didn't just storyboard the first issue and then just kind of wrote an overall story arc for the remaining ones they wrote everything out they planned everything out that's when you know something was well crafted so that they had an entire concept and an, an entire idea that they wanted to present as this story a confined story that wouldn't go on from there and but they planned it out meticulously i i, I have a lot of respect for that mm-hmm yeah, because it's such a pain to just not go one book at a time, but say, okay, let's plan out all of these and make them all tie together. Well, you can't. That's the problem. I mean, you can, but you risk falling on your face so bloody hard. Whereas if you really plan it out entirely, there's no way that you will. So, And that's what you see from this. And then just beyond that, there's a lot of visual cues that just pop up throughout the story. And this is something we see a lot of in film, uh, certain just props or, or items or just a, a, a camera angle, so many things that just set the tone. And one of the things that pops up all the time throughout Watchmen, it's obviously the most important image in all of Watchmen is that stupid little happy face button. Yeah. With the blood splatter on it. And the blood splatter is actually meant to invoke uh, a clock because at the time. With the, you know, nuclear Armageddon looming on the horizon, uh, Time magazine put out, you know, of this famous issue where the cover is the clock where the hands are set at two minutes to midnight, not just an awesome Iron Maiden song and how it was, you know, a countdown to destruction. And that theme, not just the button itself, but that shape shows up throughout the comics It as kind of that subconscious reminder. Again, it's one of those things that I didn't pick out until, you know, my 10th time reading through it, like really pouring over each panel looking for these things. But it pops up and it's it's cool. Like the happy face, you know, it, at one time, you know, it has that, you know, that fun little it's a freaking happy face. But it also serves as that reminder of, you know, the the doom that was so such a very real uh, fear at the time. And that runs throughout the comic. It's just one of those little visual reminders of the subtext behind what's going on. 
And then one other. Is that Joe snoring? Yes. Oh, my God. Seriously? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. There is not a filter in Garage Band that can take that out. Do you, do you want me to go poke him and then maybe he'll no. move and it'll stop? No, he's sick. He is. Unbelievable. At least the cat's quiet. That's because she's sitting on my lap and I'm petting her because she wanted attention. Because Joe is scaring the out of her is what he's doing. Oh, no, she's used to it. Oh, oh, my God, that's okay. loud. <laughs> All right, talk over the noise. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want me to lower the no, volume on no, the mic, that's, Roger? <laughs> that's all right. And then one other of those uh, visual moments that, again, stands out comparing the comic to the movie is the scene that takes place on Mars between uh, Dr. Manhattan and Laurie. And not just, you know, the, the grandeur of the scene, which I have to admit was translated very well in the movie, but the way that Dr. Manhattan perceives time. And how he sees all of time, past, present, and future as one large picture. He doesn't live it linearly as linearly <laughs> as the rest of us You know what? You can do. just make up your own words tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let Webster stand in your way, lad. I'm breaking new ground here. And we have all these different scenes throughout time playing out simultaneously in the comic with the past. And this is when we have the big revelation that the comedian was actually Laurie's father, which, again, story-wise is mind-blowing because he raped Sally in the past. And yet they grew beyond that, and we're not going to get into that whole thing going on. But they, they had a relationship beyond that years later. And the way the scene pans out, again, switching back and forth between past, present, and future – It's something that they did in the movie, but I wouldn't say as effectively as it worked on the page based upon what we talked about previously with the pacing of the comic. The pacing of the panels on the page, the way it plays out, sets a certain mood and a certain tension that when the – you know, the big reveal finally hits the the twist that we've talked about so many times in comics that there's no payoff because there's no, you know, backstory to it. The the pacing of the pages again – really makes the payoff that much more mind-blowing, especially, again, at the time. Well, the thing with the the pacing for all of the Dr. Manhattan time things is that it's introduced a little bit more slowly and gradually starts to take over, essentially. And so all of the back and forth throughout time and and everything that he perceives and then his time on Mars and all that, again, it, it, it builds to that nice crescendo. And so when it finally comes to the point where he is on Mars with her kind of thing, which I'll agree that the it's the the dialogue's fantastic. Everything there is really, really well done. And again, very well represented in the movie as well. That there is it's reaching the point where it's not yet the climax, but, you know, by that point, you kind of know what's going to be coming and. So when he gets involved at the end, along with Night Owl and Rorschach, it's not completely unexpected. It's not a, what what I equated to, going back to that planning ahead, if Dr. Manhattan had not been in the issues leading up to that point, and all of a sudden he shows up and saves the day, then I would have thought they didn't plan and they're just using that omnipotent 
being to save what would have been painting yourself into the corner, essentially. But -hmm. because they built it up at a very steady pace so that by the time you get there, he is part of the story. He's not just being plucked out and put there so that he can save the day and it's an easy out writing-wise. No, he is part of those going up against, um, what's his name, Adrian? What, what's his name? Yeah, we're yeah. going to go with Adrian. So that that's important, and that shows how well done it is. And it's hard to do that where you're bouncing back and forth in time when you're telling a story to hold your audience because people are going to tend to feel disassociated from the story. He holds you. He does such a great job mm-hmm. of holding you, and everything makes sense, and you, you, can, you have a sense of where it's going. Anything, Tart? Other than snoring? <laughs> no, I, I'm i kind of along the same lines. Like, the that issue was the one that, especially the second and third time I read it, kind of really <laughs> went, wow, the writing is amazing on this. I can't take you seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Joe. Are we oh, boring you? Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Sorry, keep going. Like it. Well, like I said, do you want me to go? I, if I poke him, he'll move, and then he'll stop snoring. If he gets much louder, I may get you to do that. I can't believe that this is what we've become. <laughs> and wow. that's actually kind of quiet for him. <laughs> God, you poor thing. All right, there's there's one last major visual thing I want to point out here, and that is what seems to be one of your least favorite aspects, and that's the pirate comic. As Alan Moore came up with, in a world where superheroes actually exist, nobody's going to read superhero comics. And, well, the next coolest thing is going to be pirates. So pirates have really become the major comic book stars of this world. And so at various points throughout the miniseries, uh, starting, I believe, in issue three was the first time it showed up, one of the characters in the comic, kind of like your – the audience's foothold into the world, these two characters at the newsstand – starts reading this comic and the actual panels from the comic start being interlaced into the story. And I'm going to admit flat out the first time I read Watchmen, I skipped the pirate stuff because it bored me. It didn't fit. But then upon further reflection on, you know, the second and third reading, the pirate comic, the storyline and the main character mirrors what's going on in the story with Adrian at the same time. How, and and, and I agree. And I agree. I, I don't want to make it sound like um, I didn't appreciate what he was doing thematically. I don't want to make it sound as if I, I think that it was poorly written so much as it was it was convoluted is what I mean. Mm. I it's I can appreciate the complexity of it. However, I think that it. I get the impression that it was complexity for the sake of complexity to try to make a point, that grandiose point, as opposed to just saying it. And that's where I have a problem. When you've already got issues that are packed, jammed packed, you can say a lot with a lot less. And here it was where you're jamming instead a ton more text in every single panel just for the sake of making a point. And that's where I think it fails. Hmm. We're just going to have to disagree on that one, yeah. The pirates are something that I tend to skip over as well, just because it does get to be like, okay, enough, you're you're making your point, and do we need to continually beat me over the head with it? 
Uh, Joe, what do you think of the pirates? <laughs> God damn it. That would have been great. Oh, that would have been awesome. <laughs> and that was just because I muted it to you. <laughs> clean show. Clean show. Don't make me be viewed. Roger, edit a snore in there for me. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> and just one other one little thing I want to point out here is the uh, – the, the extra stuff at the end of each issue. And again, first time through, I skipped it. I wanted to get on with the freaking story. I didn't want to read excerpts of this old dude's book. But Oh, no, they're important. I know. And th they're that's important. I, I, every time I've told somebody to read this comic, I tell them, don't skip that end stuff. It gives so much backstory and world building. I mean, there's so much stuff in these four to four or five pages per issue building up the characters this you know you see so much of the comedian and the previous generation so much subtext throughout the comics makes that much more sense when you read these things like obviously the uh the, especially the, the the pirate stuff i mean yeah. if you did and not read that stuff shows up at the end like that that came out of nowhere if you didn't read a lot of this exactly yeah you had to and like the the marital difficulties between uh, Sally Jupiter and uh, what's his name the the, the the Dexter I think his name was yeah the, the reason for that was because he's gay <laughs> and that's something that you don't pick up on that much until you read the the backup uh, material and the subtext again the subtext of so much stuff uh, Captain Metropolis there's so much about that character who was just kind of cast off in the comics but there's a lot about him in these backup stuff and it adds. So much, not necessarily to the comic itself, but to oh, the Oh, no, I think it do. I think it does. I think it does. I think it's, again, I think it's mandatory because as it is, what's that? The poem. That one wasn't mandatory. It was just okay. pretty. As it is, I think that this is going to be a, I think it's a difficult series for a lot of people to read. I think it's an especially difficult series to read for anybody of this generation. Okay. Um, I would not expect my son, say, to be able to read this and be able to appreciate a lot of what's in there. Of course, he's still young. Even then, I don't think that, I think that it's difficult for even somebody in their early 20s to properly appreciate it unless you are familiar with what was going on at the time, unless you're familiar with comics at the time, and unless you're familiar with um, a lot of the different I don't want to say tricks, but for lack of a better term, writing tricks that Moore uses throughout. Mm -hmm. And so then by reading all of the things that are provided at the end, which is basically saying, okay, listen, if you didn't get what happened in this issue, this is a subtle way of me explaining it to you kind of thing. And, but in an interesting way that adds depth to it and isn't just a, a lesson, uh, you know, an English lesson here that's going to teach you what it was about, but basically just give you a lot of, a lot more information, but also a rationale for why the issue was crafted as it was. Did you read any of that stuff, uh, Tart? I did. Um, probably not as carefully as I should have at times, just because I have the attention span of a fruit fly. So sometimes Watchmen can be a little bit difficult, even on rereads, because it, it's a task for me to finish it. 
I, I, I can follow that. Uh, but it's just because we've talked about so much about plot twists in the past, uh, in just recent weeks between Flashpoint and Wolverine and how the twists literally came out of nowhere. There was oh. nothing building that up. And you hated that, oh, Roger. Dude, yeah. And yet here in the last couple issues of this comic, we get one of the heroes turns out to be the villain behind the whole thing. We get. One of one of the characters turns out to be the other one's father out of nowhere. We yeah, get but, a giant space squid appearing in Times Square, and they're all huge twists. But it's stuff that, if you paid attention, was there the whole time. There's, I, I'll go you one further. It's not just that. There's quite a bit of foreshadowing, quite mm-hmm. a bit. I mean, you really have to be just skimming through the series and not really paying attention if you don't see what's going to be coming up. It's all there. You, If you're missing it again, and there's nothing wrong with that. Often when I'm reading, I engross myself entirely so that I would miss things. That said, even myself reading this, and I know that I, I kind of know some of it already based on, on you know having heard about it and whatnot, but it's there. You can very clearly see it. Um, but... It's not a slap in the face saying, hey, this is where I'm going, nor is it dropped out of thin air later on. It builds up and it's somewhat subtle, but again, you can pick it up so that it doesn't feel at the end that you're cheated, that the writer was once again painting themselves out of a corner. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go with one of those. I'm not going to make you flip to it right now. There is one of those, what we talked about with, you know, the splash panels, the ones that are larger than the others that make you focus. And some of them are on very important scenes. And some of them are on scenes that are just kind of there. And it's not until later on when you realize that was one of the most important things going on at the time. And there's a scene where they're in a diner. And the panel is just some dude reading the newspaper. You're like, okay, what what is so important about this panel? And it the book is telling you this is something very important going on. And you look very closely. And in, in the background in that scene, you see the informant Rorschach was talking to drop something in the trash can and then you see the guy that carries the freaking the end is nigh sign follow him and go pick it up so there we are four issues before the big reveal happened finding out that that guy was rorschach and it's one of those very subtle things that they mixed in here that makes it so successful on that meta level i i saw that immediately and was able to appreciate it i i thought that was absolutely you paid a lot more attention to this thing the first time through than i did (laughs) Yeah, I think I didn't notice that until probably my second or third read through. Oh, that was like my sixth by the time I picked that little one. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I, I, again, it's one of those where I already knew what I was getting into when I was reading this. Because mm-hmm. you'd plus, seen the movie. And... I'd seen the movie, plus I'd heard about it over the years. And though I hadn't read it and, you know, dissected it, I knew what I was getting into. Plus... I've got a few years on everybody, so it's one of those where I can, okay, I know what I'm getting into. I'm not just going to read it and sink myself into it, but I'm going to read it and kind of dissect it as I'm going along it more than I would normally. And so that's what I was doing as I was reading, so I was making sure to keep a careful eye. Plus, it's illustrated in such a way that you want to keep a careful eye. Um, One of the the best examples I can use, actually, which is going to kind of be funny is there's a new series on tv right now um called unforgettable i don't know if you guys have watched it yet no okay so basically it's a it's a woman cop and she's got a photographic memory so she remembers everything well what we're noticing as we're watching the series now is that there's scenes that they spend a little bit too much time on not too much but just a little bit and you know 
there's something in that scene that she's going to remember later on. Now, it's well done, and we're actually really enjoying the show. If you haven't watched it, check it out. It's actually quite good. But you know those scenes, and you know when she's looking at something that's not the norm in terms of cinematography, that they wouldn't actually be showing you that, but she's looking at it. So you know, pay attention to that scene, look around. It's the same thing here, where because of the way that it's anim- or illustrated, you're looking at it, and when certain things are occurring, you're thinking, this isn't quite the norm. I, I have a feeling I should be paying a little bit closer attention. There's something that I'm missing here. And you kind of look around to see what it is that you're missing or what it is that you should be seeing. And so I found myself finding things like that throughout the entire 12 issues. And that's awesome. Again, that goes towards showing that they planned so far in advance. And were there any little things that you picked up on there, Tart, or were you just kind of along for the ride? Um, I was kind of along for the ride. Usually, most comics, I'm kind of oblivious. So unless somebody points things out, a lot of times they'll go unnoticed. So it wasn't a lot of the symbolism I didn't notice until my second or third read through when one of my friends said, you know what, stop, look for this. If you have to read it over the course of, you know, a month or something to kind of take your time and notice things, then then do it that even like that scene with um you know the informant dropping something off like i only noticed it because it was pointed out to me mm-hmm. but can i ask you something tart mm-hmm. if, what is it then that drew you to this series um i did like the writing it was one of those that my best friend absolutely adored it and told me that i had to read it and he knew that i was a big fan of Sandman and I liked the comics with a lot more content than even just like some of the weeklies had and so he said you'll like this one it's definitely heavier but for some reason like it was really a struggle for me the first couple times to read through and it kind of there was so much in it that it was really hard for me to get through it with my attention span how old were you when you read it the first time um, the first time I was probably only like 12 or 13. Oh, Jesus. Well, yeah. Okay, this is not a series for a 12 or 13 year old. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you've also got to kind of take into consideration that my, even when I was a kid, my reading level was way off the charts. I think I read Jurassic Park when I was like seven years old. Like it uh, just. Still, <laughs> there's yeah. content well, I mean, in I, this is not made for 12 or 13 year old. Well, I also read The Count of Monte Cristo at you know, 11 and understood it, but it just, even now it's something, I don't know if it's the way that it's written. Well, the thing is, is I still struggle with it sometimes like trying to do rereads. I tried to reread it before we did the show as a refresher. And I only got through the first section because it takes me that long to kind of push through it. The thing is, is that I, it's not about what your reading level is at so much as what your life experience has been at. So it's all well and good for someone who's younger to read this and say, oh no, no, I get what's going on. No, you haven't lived through these kind of things. When you're looking at the, the scenes between Dan and, damn it, Lori, right? Yes. Or the scenes where they're trying to make love, but it just ain't happening. And it's because of everything that's going on and it's just too much kind of thing. You can read that as someone that's younger and think, okay, I get it. I, you know, whatever. But 
No, it's not until you live through something like that, something that happens when you are far older, when there's so much more going on in your life, when your life is upside down, that you can appreciate a scene as subtle as that alone. So when you're looking at something that this entire series is made up of scenes like that, I don't think that someone who is in their you know, teens to even early 20s. And even then, I don't think that they will be able to appreciate the complexity of those scenes simply because they haven't lived through them. They haven't experienced them. They have, you know, they have no idea what it's all about. So it's one of those where you will far better appreciate it as you have been through more in your own life as you are older. Yeah, and that's why I definitely do. It is one that I try to reread every so often. But I mean, even now, it it is still something that a lot of the the content, just reading through it, it takes me forever. And it, it really kind of pushes my attention span on it a lot. Like when I first read it, I was maybe 15 or so, and I just appreciated it for, okay, it was a pretty cool story. I, especially, come on, a 15-year-old boy, <laughs> even though I read a lot of books and all that, there were certain things I took out of this separately from, you know, the, the, the big story going on. It was, hey, boobs. I mean, <laughs> but it wasn't like, and I read it a few a few times over the years. It wasn't until just a few years ago that it finally grabbed me and everything really hit. And a, a lot of that has to do with the character of Dan. I, at, at that time, you know, I felt the way Dan did in those early scenes. Like I, I was at a, the very low point, very depressed thinking that, you know, I was never going to get back to, you know, the way things we were brought previously. the comic book podcast back, dude. You didn't have to be <laughs> depressed for long. <laughs> no, and it's just when I really, really connected with that character, that's when I started paying attention to a lot more of the undertones that were here. It, not the story, not even the characters themselves, just the general tone and feeling of a lot of the things going on here. Beyond even some of the stuff we've discussed tonight, because it goes beyond that. And that's when the comic really became for me, what it is now. Got nothing to add. You're absolutely All right. right. So we're going to stop there then because we could, I trust me, I could go on for a couple more hours talking about this comic. We're not there, going the, to. No. <laughs> there, there, there are literally college courses that you can take in Watchmen. There is that much stuff in here. If you really, really want to get down to every single little detail, there is a lot going on here. If you haven't read it, 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 you have to read it as a comic fan. You have to read it. You might not like it, but appreciate it for what it is. Really take your time and look for those little visual clues and a lot of the stuff we talked about. And I think you'll appreciate it a lot more. I think it's a series of very much like you're saying too. You may not appreciate it, but I think that if you go into it with the right expectation, that you're not reading a comic book miniseries, you are taking part in an experience from that time, then it will be it'll be different. It'll be something that you will enjoy more and you'll try to put yourself more in that time frame. If you go into it with the mindset of, oh, here's a 12-part miniseries that came out in the 80s that was supposed to be fantastic and I'll read it and you're expecting all-out action or something like that, you're not going to get that at all. I think it's very important to go with, go into this with a way different attitude and that is that you're going to be a part of something and read it as such and and 
not necessarily sink into allow yourself to sink into the story as I normally preach. That's what you're I want to do when I'm reading. But with this, you don't want to. With this, you actually do want to dissect it just so that you can see the breadth of what it is. Very well said. Uh, any last uh, words, Tart? Um, no, I think, I mean, I agree with you guys on a lot of points. It is one that story-wise, I definitely do love the story and I do like the character development and just some of the things that it did that comics didn't do in the 80s. But, you know, it, it definitely is one that benefits from multiple reads because there's no way that you can notice everything your first time through. It's funny because I equated also to um, my favorite novel has always been To Kill a Mockingbird. And I have read that novel time and time again. And what I've noticed is that with each generation that I'm reading it, with every decade that I'm reading it over again, I'm getting a new insight into it because it was so beautifully crafted and that same kind of mentality wherein the more you read it as you age and you've developed experiences in your own life you can then relate to it more that's what I got from this even though it's my first time reading it because I've got again a few decades on you both of you I, I there was more to it that I felt I lived through that I understand that I get that on a variety of levels in terms of a lot of the things that were going on in the story and I think that's important. I think that's something that as people read it, if they read it several times over their lifetime, at different points in their lifetime, they'll see and appreciate different things in it that they may not otherwise have given much attention to. Mm -hmm. And then just beyond that, just looking at it as a comic fan perspective, the way Moore and Gibbons really just deconstructed the entire comics genre itself and how many other comics over the last 25 years have tried to replicate what it was Watchmen did and have fallen flat on their faces. Like it's, again, just everything, the entire package, it hasn't been equaled production-wise since. Sure, there have been some great stories, there's been some great art, there's been some great stuff, but you put everything together and no matter how hard people have tried, this was just something special for its time. So thanks, Tart, for uh, joining us again for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And uh, as always, you can find us at comicbookinformer.com. Well, I don't get a thanks. I was here too. <laughs> yeah, you were here. Congratulations. You're welcome. <laughs> or on Twitter at CB Informer. And we'll be back next week uh, with our interview with Tart. And then back to business as usual, but uh, might have something else coming up pretty soon that uh, you guys will be interested in. So we'll see everybody next week. thought the noise quality the sound quality of tart was fantastic this time wow i'm really looking forward to next week it'll sound this good ha, 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 ha. Uh, uh, yeah i know <laughs> but but next week there is no snoring and there was no okay there is that and <laughs> there is no snoring i will give you that yes i cannot get over that you only told me on the the spider-man one that he wasn't able to get yeah, that sucks. I'll let him know. And Joe and a certain someone else won't sell me theirs, even though they don't <laughs> really care about it. <laughs> the more you care about it, the more I care about it. See, why is you're not my freaking little brother? Why do you have to be that way? <laughs>
because it's still half the fun. Screw you both. <laughs> you both suck. Literally and figuratively. Hey, what I do on my Fridays is none of your business. I know. I don't want to know. <laughs>